millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Did you know that rats giggle when they're happy? Yeah, so this has actually been known for quite some time. We just can't hear them. The ultrasonic vocalizations are about 50 kilohertz or 50,000 hertz vocalizations well above the range of human hearing. And these ultrasonic giggles have been well linked to rat joy. They do these when they're being extremely sociable or often when they're getting tickled <laughs> by humans, in fact. So when they're getting a pleasurable experience, the equivalent of a belly rub. Kia ora, no mai harumai kitiao hurihanga. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, ko Klekin Kanan Tēnei. Today, we're talking animal emotions with Professor Himena Nelson from the University of Canterbury. Himena studies animal behaviour and physiology. I work in, I guess, quite a diversity of areas, ranging generally in, in the discipline of behavioural ecology, but I work with insects in some cases, jumping spiders quite a lot, and kia. A lot of her research with jumping spiders is looking at visual information processing and decision-making. But with Kia, she's interested in emotions. Recently, I've been working on the idea of emotions in non-human animals, specifically in Kia, although I collaborate with people who work on primates and on cetaceans as well. And we are trying to investigate how to look at Emotions, how to measure emotions, specifically positive emotions. Negative emotions are slightly easier to measure because an animal like a dog might yelp. But positive emotions are a little bit harder to disambiguate. And so we're trying to find a way of measuring that and then finding, once we can reliably measure that, trying to work out if these emotions, these positive emotions, if the animals do in fact um, have them, if they affect, for example, decision-making or sociability or other aspects of the behaviour of the animal as they do in humans. Think about how tricky this is to actually study. First, how can you tell if an animal is joyful or happy? You can't ask them. And second, how can you test whether that mood impacts their decision-making? First things first. Spotting joy. I mean, my mind immediately goes to dogs. Their emotions can be so easy to read. But Himena cautions that they're quite a special case. It is quite hard to, in some ways, to extrapolate from animals that have been what you might almost call co-domesticated, where humans and dogs have almost domesticated each other. Um, so we know how to read dogs, dogs know how to read us and, and you know, and equally manipulate us. <laughs> so, so it's quite hard to extrapolate from an animal for, from which we've had thousands, tens of thousands of years living together and cohabiting together to an animal that is rather different. First of all, that does not, is not a domestic animal. And also, for example, in the case of Kia, I mean, the musculature of the face is completely different to that of mammals. And so, whereas mammals might be thought of as, in some cases, capable of smiling in all primates, and often you hear that referred to in dogs as well, 
In a bird, it simply couldn't happen because they just don't have the correct muscles to be able to do something like have a crinkly eye or whatever might give away a, a classic smile. And, and I'd also say that actually in humans, I mean, we tend to think, okay, a smile is, is supposedly kind of an indicator of a, of a positive emotion, but there are smiles and there are smiles. <laughs> so, so it can actually be surprisingly difficult to determine whether or not that's a real smile, a fake smile, a nervous smile or the various other forms of smiles that there are. But there is such a thing as a real smile in humans that does cross cultures. So you can't look for smiles or crinkly eyes. And, as was the case for the rats, happy animals might even be giving off signals that we just can't sense. There's all sorts of other things that we don't even think of that animals might be using as a sensory system because we don't even have that sensory system, or at least we don't perceive that we have that sensory system. You know, there's magnetoreception, there's electroreception, there's also there's infrasound below the range of human hearing. There's, you know, a, ability to see in ultraviolet, all sorts of things that we don't have the ability to do. And so, yeah, it does take thinking outside the box to work out, well, is it because there's nothing there or is it because I just don't perceive it to be there? And that's quite aside from the problems of it not being able to answer you a direct question, you know, are you feeling happy or whatever. So I guess step one is presuming that animals can have positive emotions and then looking for what their tells might be. For Himena, the idea for this research was sparked by her own observations of Kia in the wild. Kia are famously playful and I spend a lot of time in the mountains and I'd seen them doing a lot of pretty interesting play behaviour, including some... I mean, play behaviour is something that is, is often considered to be some sort of, you know, kind of outward expression of joy. But on the other hand, you could also equally argue that play is a way of practising skills like, you know, hand-eye coordination or paw-eye coordination in the case of a dog or a cat with a piece of yarn or hunting skills or things like this. So so you can be practicing, or in the case of humans, social skills. Imagine a toddler when, you know, the toy has gone the wrong way around and all hell breaks loose, right? So you've got to learn the tit-for-tat approaches to, to play, and that teaches humans and other primates social skills. So there are lots of functions to play, but what I've seen in Kia is, is often play that, really defies any kind of functional logic. For example, I've seen Kia uh, fly to the top, kind of the apex of a, of a roof. In, this is in the winter, snowy roof, and literally just get on their backs and slide down the powdered snow until they fall off you know, the, the roof onto the bank of snow below. And okay, the, the first thing you might argue is, well, that's a very unusual way of getting from A to B. But then the Kia flies up to the top of the roof again and does it again, in which case it clearly wasn't trying to get from A to B on its back. And on top of that, the Kia did not go to any place on the roof. It actually slid down the part of the roof that had already compressed the snow, that it had already slid down, which, being somebody who likes snow, I know perfectly well how much that speeds up the the process, right? So it seems like this Kia was doing something purely for the fun of it and there's no obvious functional kind of reason for it it's it's not like it's hunting or trying to find food it's not getting from a to b there's no skill that a parrot might need 
<laughs> involved in that. So, it, you know, you kind of, it begs the question, what is, is this just having fun? And it repeated it over and over. And again, that's another, rep- repetition is another kind of aspect of play. And so you start thinking, well, I might be quite fun. And then on the other hand, anybody that's seen Kia in the rain, it's quite easy to anthropomorphize and to go, God, they look pretty miserable. They've got their kind of their hackles or the feathers around the back of their neck raised, they're sitting in a tree, face looking down, looking to all to all human extents and purposes pretty morose and not really tossing pebbles or doing anything like that. Famously playful indeed. I think most people have seen the GoPro footage from the Kepler track last year when an inquisitive Kia took the camera for a fly round. I also had an experience with them last summer, waiting for the light to change at the Homer Tunnel in Milford. My mum and I had just gone kayaking in Milford Sound and the Kia delighted in hopping from kayak to kayak, pecking at the straps as I did laps of the car, waving my hands. I must have been great entertainment for the car behind. Anyway, starting with this premise that Kia do experience positive emotions and are playful and joyful, the next question is, how do you identify the markers of this? What does Kia joy look like? I then started looking at Kia communication because at the time, really, we kind of only thought that Kia had the one call, which everybody knows, and I won't try and imitate it because I'm terrible at it, especially under pressure with a microphone here. <laughs> Okay, insert audio clip. Of <laughs> yeah, Kia insert here. audio clip. So the the screech call or the Kia contact call, but anybody who's been around Kia knows, and anybody who actually knows the first thing about birds knows it. It's pretty unlikely that they would have one type of call. So I decided to just try and work out, you know, what kind of calls I had, how many calls I had, and specifically if the calls had any given function. And so I had a PhD student, Raoul Schwing who worked on that at the time, some time ago now. And we got recordings of quite a number of calls, but seven calls that we could sort of classify as very clearly separate calls. Uh, And we tried to work out what the animal was doing at the time that it called and also the ramifications on any other kia that were around. So did it elicit some kind of, you know, look for food or there's a predator you know, hide or something like that. So any kind of functional referent is what we would call that. And so we started doing all these experiments and, first of all, just amassing a huge database of the calls and and the behaviour of the caller and the receiver of the calls and found actually that it's not that straightforward, (laughs) Um, that calls aren't necessarily associated very clearly or specifically with one type of behaviour that many calls are attributable to lots of types of behaviour. But one call that did stand out was, was what we call a warble call, which is often termed Kia laughter. And that was a call that was associated very, very frequently with play and with almost nothing else. And it elicited, so when an animal or a Kia did a warble call, it seemed to elicit playful behavior in the Kia that were around it. So then the idea was, okay, well, we have to actually experimentally manipulate this, test this. So we um, we did some playback experiments with Kia-proof speakers, which is a lot easier said than done. Um, probably Talk took to a... me about yeah, what a, <laughs> a Kia-proof speaker involves. Um, actually, I've got it right there inside that bag. It's been a while since this has come out of the bag. 
so it's basically half of a Pelican box, which has got a speaker in it, which has got a remote-operated control and some fairly hardcore chicken wire with some nylon rope. And the chicken wire has been replaced, as you can probably see, quite a few times. And then this was hidden behind a rock and constantly monitored by the person who was testing, who was also hidden behind a rock. Because we tried various iterations of speakers that we could use for playback. And, of course, they didn't last very long at all with the Kia. How um, many speakers did you go through? Oh, God, I can't remember. But a number, mm-hmm. you know, a good three or four. So how the experiment worked is that Jimena and her team would head to a location near Arthur's Pass where they know Kia tend to hang out. Once some Kia showed up, they would play some sounds. The wobble call. A pure tone of a thousand hertz, which is in the same frequency band as Kea calls and hearing. South Island Robin territorial call. In two of the other Kea calls, the screech or contact call. And the whistle call, which is a kind of a, a sweet call, really. It sounds, well, it sounds like a whistle. So the experimenter and speaker are hidden at a distance away from the Kea, and then... The research begins. We looked at the behaviour of the bird for five minutes before the playback, for the duration of the playback, which was discontinuous. So we had a few seconds of call, a few seconds off, a few seconds on, because you can't have a very annoying, you know, 60 seconds of call. That would just cause consternation. And then for the next five minutes, we looked at the behaviour and then we just uh, scored the behaviour before and after in one-minute bins, so the behaviour per minute, and then averaged what behaviour, kind of how much time, for example, they spent playing before the call, how much time they spent playing during that minute of calling, intermittent calling, and how much time they spent playing after um, on, a, on an average per minute basis. And what did you find? And we found that they did not change their um, play behaviour at all with any of the other calls bar the wobble call and that the wobble call did increase both the time that they spent playing and um, the number of separate play bouts that they exhibited. I mean, which is pretty cool. You're just playing a sound, which is, you know, we're kind of thinking it as Kia laughter. We can't really know what it's like to be in the brain of a Kia, but if we think of it like that, you're just playing some laughter and they feel more joyous. They're, well, again, we're not in their brains, but they're playing more. That's right. So we kind of concluded that it was an emotional contagion because we did see that it would elicit, you know, in in a multitude of birds, it would elicit the same spontaneous kind of playing in much the same way as in humans. You know, we use canned laughter on radio (laughs) and on TV to essentially, you know, get people in the audience to engage with the material in a positive way. Feel more joyous? This research into warble calls that Himena and her team did was quite some time ago now. What's the next stage that they've been working on? We can at least conclude the contagion part, but we want to know whether or not it's a truly kind of a feeling of joy, if you like. And so there are a few things that we want to do. Is First of all, we just want to see what the correlates of feeling potentially joyous, for lack of a better word, is. So in humans, 
a sunny day, particularly after, you know, like lots of horrible weather, a sunny day, you kind of wake up going, oh, look, look at the sunshine, I feel. And, you you know, you automatically instinctively smile. And as I mentioned in my time in the mountains, I've kind of noticed that Kia seemed to behave in such a way that it would be similar to that. So we are trying to find sort of environmental correlates of joy, but also trying to work out whether or not it really is kind of a positive emotion. I mean, I tend to use emotion slightly differently from mood. To me, the word joy is a is a short emotion that is usually event driven. So it's driven by some kind of stimulus, either seeing the sun or, oh, I got a free bar of chocolate or I won lotto or whatever. Whereas a mood, it's you can still have a positive mood. It's just a longer lasting thing that seems to be a little more stable and a bit less spiky, if you like. And we want to see that if 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 these emotions are also kind of driving decisions as they do in humans. So emotions drive decisions as do moods drive decisions in humans. It's well established that a lot of economic decisions that are made by humans that are not very rational are driven by moods. In fact, as far as I'm aware, Nobel Prizes have been won on that. And so we want to see whether or not, for example, Kia might interpret something as a glass half full versus a glass half empty, depending on whether or not, for example, it's heard a warble call. So having identified something that looks like it elicits a positive emotion in care, this is that equally tricky second part, testing whether this positive emotion affects their decision making. The idea being, if you play a Kia warble call and you present it with some sort of ambiguous stimulus, like a glass with half of a glass full of water, does it approach it very quickly compared to a Kia that might have heard a different type of call that isn't necessarily going to put it in a good mood? So you can train Kia, for example, to to go to, I don't know, a, a bowl that is red and has lots and lots of food or really yummy food and a bowl that's yellow and has not very nice food and really uninteresting food. And then it associates yellow with not a good reward and red with a very good reward, what happens if you show it an orange bowl? And Gotcha. Our glass half full Kia will be like, yeah, orange bowl, it's going to be yum. Yeah. And the glass half empty will be... Mm. Yeah, that looks like okay. yellow to me. Exactly. And so you can theoretically manipulate, before you present that orange bowl to the Kia, you can theoretically manipulate how it's feeling by playing it, a wobble call or have it watch a video of other Kia playing versus one that is, I don't know, watching a video of Kia sitting morosely in a tree when it's raining or hearing some other kind of call which is not associated with play. And so you could potentially manipulate how it is when it starts that test. Is it in a grumpy mood or is it in a positive mood? And so at the moment, this is a theoretical kind of experimental setup that you'd need to have to investigate mood. Yeah, I mean, it's been done on quite a few, no, lots of animals. It, there's quite a lot of variation in how successful it is. So some animals require quite a lot of training. Some stimuli are more effective than others. Colors might be better for some animals. Sounds might be better for some animals. So there's a lot of variation and it's quite difficult sometimes to interpret that. We have tried it with the Kia Willow Bank with moderate success. So um, we're we're trying to redesign the experiment right now to see whether or not we can have a, a better outcome next time. 
Willowbank is a wildlife reserve in Old Tautahi Christchurch, and Humina has been working with them to develop this next round of experiments with captive care that they can train. But it takes a lot of careful thought and time to set up this experiment in a way that gives a clear answer. As Humina said, these kinds of studies have been done with other animals, including the giggling rats. The story of one of these experiments gives an indication of how tricky it can be. Here what they did is they trained the rats on a certain tone, like at 2,000 hertz, for example, and with that they got a reward, and with another one at, say, 9,000 hertz, they got some sort of punishment. And then you give them the actual test, and here they presented them with a mid-range tone, so it was 5,000 hertz, and they wondered whether or not the rats were going to be positive or negative in terms of approaching that 5,000 hertz. So they had to pre-prepare before the rats went into the test, them being either handled, just you know, just held in hands, something not necessarily aversive but not necessarily pleasurable for the rat either, or belly rubbed, tickled is what they, they often refer to it as, which it seems like the rats really enjoy. And so they did this experiment. They, they had their two groups, the tickled versus the handled rats, and they found that there was no difference overall in how frequently they went or how quickly they approached the ambiguous tone of 5,000 hertz. And so if they'd left it there, they would have gone, well, this was a failed judgment bias experiment, and something like that could have happened to IKEA. And then they went back and they'd video recorded everything and as well as um, recorded with a, an ultrasonic microphone, all the tests. And what they found is when they went to the recordings, some of the tickled rats actually produced these ultrasonic vocalizations and other ones didn't. Possibly they had big rat brothers that over-tickled them when they were too young or something, they hated it. But either way, when they divided that into the rats that produced the USVs versus those that didn't produce the USVs, the ones that did laugh, let's say, did actually approach that ambiguous tone quickly. And so they were optimistic. But if they'd simply just sort of lumped it as tickled versus handled, they would have had no indication that the experiment had actually worked. It just depended on individual variation in the rats about whether or not they enjoyed being belly rubbed. So with some redesign, they hope to continue the experiments in Willowbank and further afield. Hope to replicate that with a uh, group in Willowbank. And there's another, actually, group of captive Kia in Austria, of all places. And we hope to replicate it in, in Austria, where they've got a, quite a large group of captive Kia. So the hope is to be able to get a decent sample size and see whether or not we can retest that. Yep. There's a group in Austria researching Kia cognition and behaviour at a research station about an hour outside of Vienna. The history of Kia in Austria goes back as far as 1907, when the Emperor of Austria did a trade, some Kia for some Alpine chamois. But back to Himena. Why, I ask, research positive emotions in animals? The study of negative emotion in animals has been looked at for very obvious reasons for quite some time. So obviously it's got some significant welfare implications, it's got ethical implications, and nobody likes seeing an animal in pain. It's horrible. But positive emotions has been largely overlooked, partly because it was much more important early on to sort out the negative emotions, which potentially can kill an animal. 
So there hasn't been a whole lot of emphasis on that until more recently when I think technology has enabled us, such as these ultrasound microphones or, in fact, cameras, thermal cameras that you can point at, for example, eyeballs, which could dilate and contract, um, the pupils can dilate and contract, and you can actually measure the temperature of the eye, which might reflect how much blood is flowing in the head, which might be a reflection. In fact, it is a reflection of emotion. And so with these sorts of things, I think we can get at it. Why do it? Now that it's feasible to do, I think it's important to try and actually get past the notion that maybe humans are the only animals that might have the capacity to feel joy. And one of the problems with this, and it, you know, it, it can face a few obstacles, is that it takes us off the pedestal a little bit. And if uh, we accept that animals are capable of feeling joy and pleasure. It kind of gives some sort of intrinsic value to their lives, which might be an uncomfortable truth to face up to. Does it also allow for a future where animal welfare is not just looking at a lack of pain, but actually that you are able to set up conditions and scenarios where you have joyful animals? That's what I'd like to see, yeah. So I think that once we can master some indicators of positive animal emotion in key species that we might, for example, have as domestic, domesticated species, if we can reliably measure, for example, eyeball dilation or eyeball temperature with a positive affect, shall we say, then we can potentially design ways in which we can keep our animals in, for example, enclosures that have got better enrichment that will allow the animals to not just not suffer, which is kind of currently a little bit what it's like, but actually to enjoy, you know, to, to have the capacity to, to lead a, a fairly fulfilled life. And some might argue that it's never going to be fulfilled if it's not wild. And there's some merit to that argument, but of course they also, when animals are in the wild, they also <laughs> have a lot of pain and suffering. You know, they get killed, they get attacked, they get mauled and not necessarily die. They die of cold, they fall off cliffs. So it's not like the wild is, is you know, all rainbows and unicorns. Um, so we do have to bear that in mind as well. Um, but yeah, my ideal would be to have some kind of world in which if we do have domesticated animals, which are used for whatever reason they're used for, that they are kept in such a way that the animal is, is not just coping, it's doing well. If we did learn that animals experience joy, if we could measure it, would it change how we keep them in zoos, in reserves, in aviaries, in yards? Would it change how we think about the animals that we farm and keep? Would it change how we eat? Given her other areas of study, I've got one last question for Professor Himena Nelson. Do you ever think of the spiders? <laughs> In terms of emotions? Um, <laughs> I've been asked that before. I, I, it's got to be said that I struggle with that one, even though I'm pretty, pretty open-minded to do struggle with the idea of a happy spider. Mind you, there are spiders that it's tempting to say they're grumpy. Certainly there are spiders that on some days are extremely uncooperative and really unhelpful and are just behave in a really like not normal manner 
and clearly don't want to have anything to do with you or I typically move them around with paintbrushes. It's a really easy way of moving them around and sometimes they get really angry and they'll bite the paintbrush, which is hilarious. And so you do get spiders that can be quite placid and you can have the same spider that can be quite placid one day and the next day is not having none of it. Um, so, you know, you want to do an experiment and it's like, nah, I've had it. I'm not, I'm not doing an experiment today. Um, I'm going to jump out of here every single time you try and put me in. So the spiders are not like they're all the same, for sure. And it's not like one day is necessarily going to be the same as the next day. There's quite a lot of evidence now that spiders um, might have personalities, which would mean that they have enduring kind of traits like boldness or veracity or, you know, risk aversion or whatever it might be that do tend to be maintained over time. But I still struggle to think of, like, the joyful spider, to be honest. Thanks to Professor Himena Nelson from the University of Canterbury, Te Whare Wangana o Waitaha. Ko Clerken Canada ho te kaiho tu o tēne hōtaka i āwhina mai a Liz Garten rawa ko Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by Phil Benj and Tim Walken is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Our website is at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And you can sign up to our monthly newsletter there and you can also access the extensive back catalogue of Our Changing World episodes, including one where Jimena speaks about her work with jumping spiders. You can also find us on Twitter or Facebook, where we are at RNZ Science. Have you caught up with the latest season of Black Sheep yet? This multi-award-winning podcast is in its seventh season, and the latest episode tells the story of Dr. Alfred Newman, one of the most notorious scientific racists in New Zealand history. While some of his views make for really challenging listening, it's also a really thought-provoking dive into the wider story of scientific racism in Aotearoa at the time. All delivered in William Ray's sound-rich and thoroughly engaging style. Find it on the RNZ website or on whatever podcast app you like to use. Tenakwe i mai. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. Kia pai to wiki.